The Water Values Podcast, Session 85. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey, and thanks for joining me. We've got another great show for you today, but first, thanks again for everyone who's continuing to tune in and listen to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate all your support, and if you've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it, would really appreciate you just leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast directory you're listening to the show on. You know, that's, a, that's just a great way for others to find out about the show and to uh, express your support for the show. Uh, today's guest is Raul Pacheco Vega. He is a professor that uh, looks at a lot of issues concerning water. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about Mexican water conflict today, uh, as well as uh, some issues about global, uh, the politics of global uh, sanitation. And we're also going to get into uh, his unique perspective on privatization and municipalization. Um, and so, you know, whenever I do these these podcasts, I always learn something. Uh, no matter how many times I've gone over the material, every speaker, I think, is able to teach me something. And I find something else out that I didn't may not have known. And uh, that was certainly true in this case. Um, Dr. Pacheco Vega was fantastic. Really appreciated his time. And I really think you're going to enjoy the show. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Raul, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, to start off, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? For sure. Um, my work is basically on water. Thank you so much, Dave, for inviting me. Um, my work is on water because since I was a child, I was interested in cleaning the environment. It was sort of the, the one thing that I was very sure that was needed and the one thing that people didn't seem to care that much about and that was very worrisome because um, I could see that people would waste water all the time when I, as I was growing up um, and then when I moved to Canada I lived in Vancouver I lived in Vancouver for 20 years of my life and uh, when I moved to Vancouver I sort of felt that people were not appreciative of the time, um, you know, of, of the fact that they don't have as much water as they think. A lot of literature says that Canada has perhaps the most water in the world or one of the top five countries with the most water in the world. That is actually not correct. That's something that is assumed because Canada has so many lakes and so many reservoirs. But... In reality, one of the biggest problems, and that's what got me interested in Mexican water policy specifically, as I have done for the past few years, is the fact that I that we don't actually know how much water is in the groundwater. We have very few groundwater management systems, and that is a problem. And that's a problem because it makes people think that they have this artificial abundance when the reality is because we don't know at what rate and at what pace we are wasting water and we are 
with throwing water, we end up thinking that we have more than we actually have allotted. So that, that and also the fact that I was uh, thinking of working as a chemical engineer, that was sort of my, my childhood dream, you know, to think and to work as a chemical engineer. I, I always loved that field of work. And I started doing uh, wastewater treatment in the lab uh, at a research center where I got hired as an intern. And this was when I was not even finished my undergrad. And then they said, well, how about you stay on to work as a researcher? And I said, well, as a researcher, it's going to be really hard because I have only an undergraduate degree. And I'm very aware that I'm going to need a PhD for that, but sure, why not? So I started doing some work doing wastewater treatment, particularly leather manufacturing wastewater treatment. Uh, tanneries, the, the factories where you can uh, use chemical compounds to produce, uh, to transform raw hides into finished leather, tanneries produce very, very toxic water. They each one of the five stages of uh, water uh, of treatment of the hide generates very, very toxic compounds and it releases toxic compounds into the water that is being uh, streamed out of the process. So for, for example, when you soak the hides, the raw hides, they come salted to avoid decomposition. So uh, when you soak it, you remove all the salt, and that's basically sodium and chloride ions that are going into, into the water. They, they're very toxic for um, marine life and aquatic life. And then when you try to remove the hair from the hide, you use um, sulfides, which are extremely toxic. Uh, and then when you are tanning the hide, you use chromium, which can also go from chromium-3, which is the compound that you use to tan leather into chromium-6. And all of these compounds are being released into uh, our water environment. So that was sort of what gave me the clue that water was one of the most important, if not the most important topic that I could research. And then I decided to do a PhD. I have a double PhD in political science and human geography. But the fact that I have an engineering degree and a master's degree in international business allows me to look at the problem of water from a very interdisciplinary perspective. It allows me to think about water issues from the perspective of someone who understands that there's um, that there are many facets to the issue of water governance. You know, you can't just say, well, we need more wastewater treatment plants. Sure, that's what chemical engineering would tell you in sanitation engineering, but what about energy? What about the energy that we're going to use to build and operate the, the wastewater treatment plant? That energy needs to come from somewhere, and those sources of energy may actually not be, uh, they, they may be actually pretty bad and, and pretty toxic to the environment. Sure. And, so that's basically that's basically why I got interested in, in doing an interdisciplinary study. Well, that seems like a very uh, you know a, a very good background to be doing what you're doing. Uh, you've mentioned a couple things in there that I'd like to get into during our time today. Uh, the first is you said you started studying uh, water conflict in Mexico. 
so could you kind of give us a flavor for for water conflict in Mexico? You know, kind of what what is at the heart of the conflict, uh, and are they multiple? Is it you know? So could you just kind of give us some background on on water conflict in Mexico, please? Sure. Um, one of the things that I have found uh, generates water conflict in Mexico is conflict over allocation. Who gets to use the water and why? Uh, and, and why do they have this access? And this is interesting because um, I, I have been very curious to understand conflicts that are not common, conflicts that are called intractable. So those are conflicts that are very long in duration, that are hard to resolve or that they remain unsolved. And most of the conflicts that I see tend to be uh, intractable are conflicts that are primarily um, conflicts for um, water allocation and also conflicts for uh, hydroelectric dams. And this is interesting because these conflicts end up being this, the reaction of civil society to a top-down imposition of uh, hydroelectric dams into their, their livelihoods. You know, it's very important to remember that the people that are living in areas that then will be flooded by constructing a new dam are people who have their own livelihoods and who may actually have been living there. Those settlements have, may have been there for decades. So it's important to think about the way in which we focus on the, uh, on the conflict because this conflict ends up being one of those uh, challenges for governments, because particularly if the government is really interested in the well-being of the community that they're flooding or that they're relocating. Uh, one of the most interesting conflicts that I've been studying is in El Zapotillo in, in central Mexico, and it's a conflict that is derived from the fact that two states are both growing at really unprecedented pace and the population is growing a lot and what we end up seeing is that there's not a lot of really solid um, that there's not a lot of really solid infrastructure to provide uh, water at the municipal level in both states so both states agreed that there would be a dam built in one of the states but the problem is that because the other state is benefiting more, that it ends up being one of those uh, conflicts where we see no, um, where we see no advancement in the discussion, where we see that there's this conflict that needs to be uh, resolved because people from Guanajuato need the water and people from Jalisco don't want to give the water and in the middle of that you have a co three communities that are going to be flooded by this by this dam so we need to be very careful of all the factors but particularly the factors that make the the conflict intractable what i have found is that uh, when society is unable to when communities are unable to have their say in projects the conflict becomes intractable.
So that you know, so that's interesting in terms of uh, we we have the two two states involved in that project you're identifying, as well as the three communities that are going to be flooded. Uh, and it it sounds like you know a, a, a very political problem. How has how has uh, you know is the environmental issue? Have, are those issues at all present in looking at the dam issue? Sure. Um, it's, uh, well, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think one of the main problems that I see here is that the communities are protecting their environment, but they're more interested in the livelihood, whereas the environmental impact becomes sort of a second tier kind of uh, question, which is very problematic, very, very problematic. So it's, it's something that needs to be, uh, it's something that needs to be taken into account, but I don't think it's taken into account at the, uh, at the time. Okay. And so, uh, as as you're working through the resolution of the conflict, or it's you know it's intractable, uh, so perhaps there is no resolution. But how are these how are these types of conflicts? There's there's a resolution. Whether or not that resolution is satisfactory to all parties uh, oh, yeah. is another question. So how how are these typically getting resolved? Well, intractable. The the, the conflicts that I'm I'm following that are intractable. Uh, and whose tractability has been changed by it has been normally been by judiciary intervention by legal intervention. So you know uh, the the gov- the government the federal government goes to court against the people and they say, well, this is social benefit. So this is a, a sort of a, an infrastructure that needs to be of social benefit. So there's no no way we can uh, afford to let it not be built. So uh, oftentimes the judiciary ends up uh, making a resolution against the against the uh, making a resolution against the the not the people and more in favor of the government. So that's usually what happens. Sure. So it almost sounds like it's an economic decision that's being made. The the law is is kind of siding with the economics of it. Is that would that be it a fair is. would that be a fair statement? Yeah, it is. It is, and it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad because uh, it becomes a really complicated um, issue because society. I mean, the communities that are being affected are affected because. Uh, they, I mean, they can't relocate. That's the problem, right? Like, what is valuable for you know a large city is not important for a smaller community, and we end up creating solutions for economic interests and for governmental interests that are supposed to be in pro of you know global societal well-being. But well, you know that really doesn't work in my in my view because that's not the way in which you're going to get buying from society sure so i think a little background would also help color this conversation um you know in the in the u.s at least there there are two different ways 
generally speaking, that that water is can be you know you can get a quote water right. You know, there's the riparian water rights, and then there's uh, the prior appropriation water rights. How how is water treated under the law in Mexico? So and this is very complicated. Uh, it really depends because municipal wastewater is governed by and municipal water provision is governed by the municipality. But in this case of two states, there's sort of a legal and policy conundrum because uh, the federation has, you know, global authority over how water is allocated. But because these are not cities but states. Uh, the government needs to do to agree with each one of the state governments to build the dam. But still, the federal regulation, the federal regulatory agency, CONAGUA, will end up being the one that uh, creates uh, that creates these sort of very uh, it, it creates this sort of top-down hierarchical. This is how I'm, how we're supposed to. Be working on on the uh, on governing water, so that's one of the reasons why water governance in Mexico is so complex because it's really it really has a lot of different things. Uh, a really uh, a list of really different. Uh, there there's always a list of different things that are relevant to water governance at the same time, right? Like you know. Some, so for example, the states don't have authority, but they get into the process of governing water. And you have states building state-level water authorities, whereas you know municipal water utilities end up being weakened by the process. So this this is very complex. I would love to say that it's it's a really easy answer, but no, it's it's complex. The way in which we govern water in Mexico is very complex. Yeah. Sure. Uh, one of the other things you you mentioned when you were kind of giving your background was uh, that you um, have looked at kind of sanitation and kind of policy surrounding sanitation. So let's let's kind of shift gears and move that way. So when when you talk about the global politics of sanitation, what what do you what do you mean by that? So I'm. Very interested. Well, today is International Women's Day. Today is March 8th. And I, I it, it's interesting because whenever I think about sanitation and at the global scale, I think about all the different barriers that people have to access in sanitation. Over 1 billion people, more than 1,000 million people don't have access to proper sanitation. They don't have access to toilets. You know, more than 900 million defecate in the open. This is very worrisome because a child dies of enteric diseases, basically one child every 14 minutes. It's That is a lot of people. And, and we could solve some of those, you know, prevent some of those deaths if we had proper sanitation. So. My work has been focusing on how we can increase access to toilets and other forms of sanitation globally. And while the earlier work that I've been doing uh, has been focused on uh, Mexico and Mexican sanitation governance, lately I have been expanding to sort of bring this, this call for global sanitation 
two international uh, two international uh, contexts. So, for example, uh, I have been pushing the United Nations uh, water. Uh, there's not an agency, but there's an agreement, a mechanism, and I have been pushing them to push as well and to try to promote uh, the World Toilet Day, the the global day that we celebrate access to toilets. And I have also been doing some work on pushing India to increase uh, access to sanitation. And there's actually Narendra Modi, the Indian prime minister, operated on, on a political platform that would encourage, that would say no, no marriage with no toilet, right? Like no women will be getting married and everybody will have access to a toilet. So his platform was very much a platform of uh, water, of uh, sanitation access. And that's really very interesting in how that works because I have never seen any other politician that uh, has been, uh, I have never seen any other politician that has been focused on how much access to, to sanitation there is. Uh, so this is very, it, it's very, it changes, uh, it changes the way in which we think about uh, sanitation because now there's a political implication to not having sanitation. So that's one of the things that I really, that I really like about, um, about the, the way in which uh, sanitation access is being improved in India because it has, a political and, and sort of an electoral, it's, it, it has become an electoral mechanism. You want to be a prime minister, you need to offer a global access to sanitation to people in India, which is one of the biggest uh, open defecation countries in the world. Right. So there are a lot of NGOs that focus on WASH, you know, the, the water uh, and sanitation hygiene uh, sector. So uh, when you look out at at the kind of the what I'll call the wash sector, what what are you seeing in terms of where resources are being deployed, how effective they are? I'm just kind of curious in terms of uh, uh, of of how this problem that you've identified is being addressed. Well, I think um, NGOs have a very strong vocal role but it usually comes in there this is ironic in india ngos are focused on sanitation but in mexico it's not seen as one of the main roles um, in india you see a lot of advocacy but a lot of the advocacy that i see in the global politics of sanitation is advocacy by intergovernmental agencies or by uh, Brookings institutions. So there's a lot of lobbying for better water access from the World Bank, from UNESCO, um, et cetera, right? Like those international organizations. And then by the uh, Water and Sanitation Council, which is <clears throat> sort of a non-governmental organization in the sense that it doesn't have governmental status, but it does have sort of multiple governments funding. So uh, the big NGOs, in, for example, in India, are interested in, in sanitation, but in Mexico, they're not. They're very interested uh, in, in 
they're 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 very interested in in offering a sort of a um, they're they're interested in water access. They're not interested in sanitation. For them, the important thing is you know to promote the human right to water, to promote no privatization of water, to promote equal water access and so on, but they're not all that interested in sanitation, which frustrates me to no end. <laughs> sure. Uh, so how uh, you've, you've kind of mentioned that there have been uh, politicians, at least in India, who've run on a, a sanitation platform or a, a water platform. Uh, how are, how's the electorate viewing those candidates? And, you know, is, is the sanitation is, issue, um, is that striking a chord with voters? Are, are voters responding to that? In India, they are. I mean, in India, they were very interested, but, but particularly because this combines, and again, this is an agenda issue, this, com- this combines with the, with the discussion around having to get married. Um, and then, you know, women would oppose marriage and say, um, I won't get married until I have access to sanitation. So I think Narendra Modi actually, you know, won in many ways because he was sort of able to galvanize the female electorate in, in some ways, but also the male electorate in providing access to uh, improved sanitation. Um, but I think we, we, we ought to really... Um, sort of think about sanitation in a holistic way. Because, for example, in Mexico, if Mexico had a much larger rural population, and obviously with no access to sanitation, which they do have no access to sanitation, probably we would see a change in the approach because governments would be seeking votes from those rural populations and they would try probably try a platform similar to the one from Modi. But um, I find that in Mexico, that's not the case. I, I find that it's very complicated, really, really complicated uh, to try to galvanize, you know, the electorate around this issue. I mean, this issue is relevant in countries like Pakistan, in countries like Ghana and Ethiopia, where you see a lot of identification. And, and that sort of very, that provides the very, the electorate a very visible sort of yardstick where to assess uh, how things operate, but uh, not really in the, uh, I don't think that works as well in uh, in other contexts. Okay. And, and so we've, we've got the issue. It's, it's, it's a, it's become a political issue. How is, how, what is the advocacy or what is the delivery method for solving the problem, are, are these are the politicians saying, "Look, we want the government to step in and run the sanitation services," or is it more of a kind of a P three or three P agreement where a private party is going to come in and receive payments from the government and things of that nature? How 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 is the how is the sanitation how are the sanitation services and infrastructure going to be delivered? Uh-huh. I. A lot of the, the problem, and this is a problem that I have with the ways in which Mexico is governed. There's a very strong push by the Mexican government to privatize, not even three people, like not even PPP, not even uh, 
public-private partnerships. They're very much pushing for private provision. And this is already sort of starting to be discussed in the city where I live here in, in Mexico, Aguascalientes, where the government wants to privatize wastewater treatment. And I'm like, uh, that is so not going to happen because, you know, your obligation as a municipality, as a water utility, is to provide access to toilets, access to sanitation, and access to wastewater treatment. But it seems like, you know, the the Mexican government doesn't seem to be, most Mexican governments, particularly the Aguascalientes government, the city where I live, doesn't seem to be very concerned with the fact that it's their constitutional mandate. I mean, the government is, uh, the government, municipal government is responsible for providing wastewater treatment. They don't need to subcontract or they don't need to uh, give the business to a private entity. That's not how it's mandated, right? Uh, many utilities do it because they're uh, bankrupt or they don't have access to qualified human capital. But that's not the case in a mid-level, mid-range, sort of large-ish large uh, city here in Mexico. So this is problematic. In, in other countries, there's a lot of combinations of different uh, of different, there are combinations of approaches, but I have always seen uh, sort of very, I have always seen sort of very much a push for privatization of supply. Sure. So uh, f from my perspective, at least, uh, P3 arrangements are not, are not bad in and of themselves. What what needs to happen is there needs to be oversight. the The government can't just say, "Oh, we contracted that to someone else." It's it's their responsibility. They need to be active partners. They need to oversee it. And I'm I'm kind of curious if 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 what you see is the problem with uh, the the privatization of of that service is. I mean, I I've seen some some poor P three agreements that have given P threes a bad name, but. Um, there's there are also good ones out there, and so I'm I'm just kind of I just want to get to the kind of the kernel of of what what the issue is with with P3s is that is it just that they there's no trust in the government. The problem is that they the problem is that they increase the it becomes a really expensive venture, and they increase prices of the service. At its, I mean. Local governments need to subsidize services. That's part of their job in, in, in part, right? But uh, if you think about it, they also end up being, uh, they in, in privatizing, and, and this is more private supply rather than PPPs. And as you said, some PPPs have given PPPs a really bad name. But when we look at this from a private supply perspective, it becomes really problematic because the prices, you know, go through the roof and then it becomes more expensive to have a private entity provide a public service than, uh, than a non-private entity. Sure. And one of the things I've, I've heard over and over again is that, look, our governments are cash strapped. They don't have the the ability to fund the improvements that are needed in order to, to deliver the services. Um, 
And that's what kind of that's one of the reasons people say, "Oh, look to a P three because you can use private capital." And and um, and so, is it is it a matter of lack of political will, where the government just doesn't want to be seen as the the entity wearing the black hat, so to speak? That's that's charging the the funds to the to the the electorate. I think that's in part that that is part of the that is part of the. Uh, that's part of the process, definitely. I, I, I really believe that that's part of the of the process, that the government wants to be seen as though there's a, um, as though there is some degree of, they don't, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with the issue and the challenge of having to provide the service. So that, that is basically what I think is, is the main, the main issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting perspective, um, and one I, I I've seen all the time where where they just don't want the the government officials don't want to be seen as the ones who are raising rates um, because there there is a, a contingent of the electorate that views that as a tax, not as payment for a service. Um, yep. So so I, I I agree with you there. Well. You know, Raul, we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here. Is there anything that you'd like to say that I that I haven't asked you? Uh, you know, is, is, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, not that I, not that you haven't asked me, but I think there's. I, I just wanted to reemphasize uh, what I said at the beginning. You know, I got into water because I think it's important to have a an holistic global perspective on how water access is denied. So I would like to remind people, and particularly your, your listeners in the show, I would like to remind your, your uh, listeners and, and tell them, you know, we need to really think about water, not only water as water in the agricultural context, but also uh, water in the, in the urban context, right? Like in water in the in the wastewater treatment context. So that's basically the one thought that I would lo- love to, to remind your, your, um, to remind your, your listeners. That's, that's main, my main point. Okay. Terrific. Now for those folks who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to find that information? Um, well, my website would be www.raulpacheco.org, R-A-U-L-P-A-C-H-E-C-O.org. Um, and I have links to my publications and I have a blog. And I'm also on Twitter at, at Raul Pacheco, R-A-U-L-P-A-C-H-E-C-O. And I also have a Facebook page, which is Dr. D.R. Pacheco Vega, P-A-C-H-E-C-O-V-E-G-A. So that's basically where, where people can find me. Fantastic. Well, Raul, thanks so much for your time again. Really appreciated speaking with you and you enlightening us on these issues of uh, Mexican conflict over water uh, and your thoughts on uh, the global politics of sanitation as well. So we got into some privatization, municipalization issues. So uh, again, thanks so much for your time and really appreciated having you on. Thank you so much. You bet. We'll talk soon. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Raul Pacheco Vega, as you can tell, fantastic guy. Um, and he did, a, I thought he did a terrific job, uh, even though he's not a native English speaker. I mean, he, uh, I kind of feel sorry for some of the guests I've had on where I've, I may rapid fire questions at him in their non-native tongue. And, uh, and they've all done a fantastic job, including Raul, uh, in, in answering those questions. And so uh, 
he was fantastic. Really appreciated his time. And uh, the takeaway I'm going to focus on today is going to be the privatization issue. Uh, he obviously did not like privatization. Uh, I have a little different different opinion on privatization, um, and it was very interesting to hear his perspective. And I think a lot of it, 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 it primarily had to do with the cost uh, that the private sector just is going to require a higher return on their invested capital than a government will. And I think that's that's just the basis of that's you know that, that's economics. And really, there are so many infrastructure needs that we don't have enough public capital to pay for all those. And so I think we do need to to engage the private sector in bringing their capital to the table to get some of these water projects done. And I think the, the, the problem people have with P3s are the ones where it hasn't gone smoothly, and, and that kind of leaves a bad taste in some people's mouth. And I know there's been uh, one P3 that didn't go particularly well in South America, and I'm just kind of curious how much, because it got a lot of publicity. Um, I mean, my, my sixth guest on this podcast, Jim Salzman, wrote a, uh, a big piece on that particular P3 in his book, Drinking Water. And so I'm just wondering how much uh, in, in you know, the Latin American countries, in South America, Central America, uh, how much the influence of that highly publicized P3 uh, colors their, their views on that particular issue. Um, I think here in at least the United States, my view on the P3s is, uh, and this would be true even in you know, a South American or uh, Central American country, is that if you're going to have a P3, the government party to the contract cannot wash its hands of the contract or wash its hands of its duties to oversee that contract and and make sure that the services provided to their to its constituents are quality services and rendered in the way and the manner that the contract specifies too often governments look at the the private sector and just say hey we'll enter into the P3 we're we've we've done our duty we're done with it the the private party is just going to handle it and that's not how it should go the 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 government party needs to be an active participant in overseeing that contract and that that is it, it is the it is the key to a good public private partnership in my opinion so um that is going to do it for today you can check out the show notes at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 85. You can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me at at DTM1993 or tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And please, as I said at the top of the show, uh, don't be bashful about leaving a rating and a review of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory you're on. So thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciated your time. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.